The sermon I'm preaching this morning is so brand new that I haven't even preached it in Willoughby yet. It um, comes out of a series that I'm preaching on Romans at the moment, and there were some thoughts when I hit Romans 3 that people appreciated, and I said, well, I need a separate sermon on that, and that's what produced this sermon, which is why I still haven't figured out what the text is for this sermon. The text for the sermon is the Day of Atonement and its connection to Christ, which means that we're looking at Leviticus 16, we're looking at a short line from Romans 3, and then we're looking at some passages from Hebrews 9 and 10. So what I thought we'd do is we'll read Leviticus 16 right now, and then Romans 3 verse 25, and then during the sermon, at some point I'll tell you, okay, have your Bibles open to Hebrews 9 and 10, and we'll read a few passages as we go through some lines from the Day of Atonement to Christ. So at this time, let's turn in Scripture to Leviticus chapter 16. There we read in God's Word the following, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd of a sin, for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarments on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil. Put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. And then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins... And so we shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. 
No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. And then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altars all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat free, go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and you shall do no work, neither the native nor the stranger who sojourns among you, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. And in Romans 3 verse 25, a which speaks as follows. Whom God put forward, so that's Christ. Christ was put forward by God as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And how that ties into the Day of Atonement, I'll explain as we go through the sermon. Following the sermon, and that will include a prayer of application, we'll sing hymn 38. Dear children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and guests, one thing to remember when reading Scripture is this line. 
It's a favorite of mine for the grade 12 students, and there's some grade 12 grads in the room here. The message is often in the middle. The message is often in the middle. That's a feature of Hebrew literature, especially of poetry, but it's not limited to poetry. The message is in the middle. It's called chiasm, after the Greek letter chi, which looks like the English letter X. And generally it means that whatever comes before the middle is paralleled by something that comes after the middle, and it will be topically equally far removed from that middle. Now, Leviticus is the third book of the five books of Moses. Now, in our English Bibles, the Bible books aren't in the same order as in a Jewish Bible, but the five books of Moses are. And boys and girls, you'll know it. Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? What's the book in the middle? It's Leviticus. And the theme of Leviticus is, be holy for I am holy. It's a phrase that's repeated over and over and over again. Leviticus is the book about being holy in God's presence, how to be clean, how to be pure. It describes all the laws that ensure the people of God are clean or how they are to become clean if they're unclean. And in the middle of these laws, we find the law of Leviticus 16, the regulations for the Day of Atonement. More than any other ritual found in Leviticus, the Day of Atonement dealt with the removal of sin from God's people so that they might be pure before Him, so that they might serve Him and worship Him. But the Day of Atonement wasn't perfect. Even the Israelites were aware of that. When confessing his sin, David noted that sacrifices do not remove sins. The Day of Atonement was but a shadow, a shadow of the real way in which God would deal with the problem of sin. It was a very sharp image, a very clear picture, but it wasn't the real thing. The real work would be done by Jesus the Christ, the Son of God come in the flesh, whom God, as we read in Romans, put forward as the propitiation by His blood. Now one thing to realize is that the term translated propitiation in the ESV is actually the translation of a Greek word which in the oldest Greek translation of the Old Testament was the word for the mercy seat. And so Romans 3 verse 25a makes the clear statement that Christ is the mercy seat. He is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. And so this morning we'll see what the Day of Atonement was all about, how it pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ, and how Christ is the fulfillment of God's work of atonement. Summarize the good news being proclaimed this morning with this theme, salvation is only through the atonement by Christ. We'll first look at Leviticus 16, the different rituals of the Day of Atonement, and then we'll consider the many lines that can be drawn to Jesus Christ. The Day of Atonement is known in Hebrew as Yom Kippur. Yom is the word for day. Kippur is from the word kapar, which means to cover. The word is actually used when Noah waterproofed the ark by smearing pitch over it. So kapar means to make something functional or, or look good. For a modern image, think of paint. 
So Yom Kippur translates as the day of covering. Now in English, the word kapar is generally translated with atone. There's an interesting history here. When John Wycliffe was translating the Hebrew Bible into English, this is still before the Great Reformation, he couldn't think of a good English word to translate the verb kapar, as he felt that cover didn't quite catch what the covering actually accomplished. And so Wycliffe made up a new word by joining the English words at and one. If you write at and one as one word, you get at one, or you get a tongue. Wycliffe did that because he wanted to convey the thought that the covering would join God and man together in a renewed harmony. And that's why Yom Kippur, which literally means the day of covering, is known to us as the day of atonement. And finally, it should be noted that the lid on the ark, the cover on the box, which we know as the mercy seat, is called in Hebrew the kaporet. That's from the same word kapar. Which means that when Paul calls Christ the mercy seat in Romans 3 verse 25, and when he speaks of Christ's blood, he evokes thoughts related not just to some piece of furniture in the temple, but to that one special day on which God dealt with the sin of his people. That day of atonement. The day on which God justified Old Testament Israel. So Yom Kippur, the day of the covering, the day on which the ark's cover was smeared with blood unto atonement. Now the day of atonement was an annual event commanded by God with the purpose of removing all sin from his people. That removal of sin had three aspects to it. First of all, the person who made the removal happen had to remove sin from himself and from everyone who was involved in the removal of sin. So step one was dealing with the sin of the mediators, the sin of the priests. Next, the sin had to be removed from the people. And then finally, sin had to be removed from the sanctuary. So the Day of Atonement was about the cleansing of the facilitators of worship, of the worshipers themselves, and of the place of worship from sin. That annual Day of Atonement was a very special day. Leviticus 16 verse 31 is described as a Sabbath of solemn rest. The original here has a Sabbath of Sabbathness. As it was on a fixed day of a fixed month, the Day of Atonement could actually be on any day of the week. Boys and girls, just like Christmas. Christmas isn't always on a Sunday. It can be on any day of the week. Still, this was the, actually the most holy Sabbath of the year. It was the Sabbath of Sabbathness. A day of rest which would usually fall on a weekday. And it happened to fall in the seventh month of the year. That's the month of the Sabbath. And it begins on the 10th day of the month, which is the same day in the month as the day on which the Passover lamb had to be chosen in the first month of the year. So the Day of Atonement came exactly a week of months 
after the first preparation day of the Passover. And the day was not just a day of rest, it was a most solemn day. The Israelites had to afflict themselves. That means they had to fast, they weren't allowed to eat. And this was actually the only feast day on which the Israelites had to fast. Indeed, besides the name Yom Kippur, the annual event was also simply known as the fast. So the Day of Atonement was a most solemn event, in some ways comparable to, to what Good Friday is to Christians or, or what Remembrance Day is, is to Canadian society. It's a day of sober thoughts. And during this most special day, all sorts of religious rites were performed by the high priest. Actually, even the daily rites that a normal priest would normally do were done by the high priest. Everything on this day, it pointed to the superlative. It pointed to the most extreme. This was the high point. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would dress down. Yeah, he wouldn't dress up. He would dress down. He would lay aside his colorful clothes with all those beautiful embroidered precious stones and he would dress himself in white linen. Four bits of clothing, underwear, an overgarment, a belt, a turban. All of white to symbolize holiness. All of linen, not of wool, for wool makes you sweat. Linen doesn't. And sweat being sticky and smelly, that points to uncleanness, hence the linen. And before he put on those clothes, the high priest had to take a bath. Now, normally a priest would just wash his hands and his feet before performing a rite. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to wash his whole body. Everything began as clean and as pure as possible. And everything was done to make sure that everything stayed as clean and as pure as possible. There were five sacrificial animals involved in the activity of the Day of Atonement. Five animals for the four sacrifices that had to be made. Two burnt offerings, one for the priesthood, one for the people. And then again, two sin offerings. Again, one for the priesthood and one for the people. A bull and a ram for the priesthood. Two goats and a ram for the people. And the bull and the goats together formed a sacrifice for the whole sanctuary. Now those two goats, they formed a single burnt offering, but they were distinguished. One goat was for Yahweh, for the Lord, that was the one that was killed. And the other goat was for Azazel, that was the goat that was sent away into the wilderness. I'll tell you a little bit more about those goats in a moment. In simple terms, the course of events was as follows. It was centered around the high priest going into the most holy place where the ark was, and he did so three times. The first time he would go in with a censer. Boys and girls, think of a dustpan here that's made of metal, in which you can, can carry something that's really, really hot, like burning coals. So he went in with a censer and with incense. And once in the most holy place in front of the ark, he would put the censer down and then he would put the incense on top of the hot coals that were burning in it. And that incense would then produce a thick cloud of sweet-smelling smoke. The point here was twofold. 
The cloud would prevent the sinful high priest from seeing the holy God enthroned above the ark. It would also prevent holy God from seeing the sinful priest. And in that second sense, the cloud of sweet-smelling incense was symbolic for the prayer of intercession. A prayer that sought God's mercy and His grace. Paul calls it in another place in one of his letters, a pleasing aroma. After putting that incense down, the high priest would go back outside. He'd kill the bull. He would take some of the blood, go back to the ark and sprinkle the blood once against the front of the mercy seat. That's that cover lid on the ark. And then seven times on the ground in front of the mercy seat. That was the payment for the sin of the priesthood. Again, the high priest would go outside, now kill the goat for Yahweh, the goat for the Lord, take some of its blood, go back to the ark, and again, sprinkle the blood once against the front of the mercy seat, and then seven times on the ground in front of the mercy seat. That was the payment for the sin of the people. Thus, there was a pathway of blood to holy God, and there was blood on the mercy seat to cover the people. And thus the covenant between God and God's people was reconfirmed with blood, the symbol of life. And then finally, the high priest would take some of the blood of both the bull and the goats, and he would go throughout the whole tabernacle or the temple complex to purify the sanctuary with blood. Just as Noah smeared pitch on the ark to waterproof it, so the high priest smeared or sprinkled blood on everything to cover the unholiness of all worship items, the unholiness that had come to them because they had been used by sinful people. Now, the sins had been covered out of God's sight, but the sins were still there underneath the cover. Those sins not only had to be covered, they had to be removed. And that's where the other goat plays a role, the goat for Azazel. Now, Leviticus 16 is the only biblical reference we have to Azazel. Uh, we do have references to Azazel in some other much, much later Jewish writings, but we can't trust that to explain who or what Azazel is, as it's clearly been influenced by other religions, especially Persian religion. Traditionally, Azazel was figured to be two words, to mean the goat of sending away, or scapegoat. Think of the word escape, right? Scapegoat, the goat that goes away. Another possibility is the roughness of God, which was understood to mean a very steep cliff on the mountainside. Some figure Azazel was a place name, or a deserted place, a bit like Timbuktu in the English language. If you go to Timbuktu, you're, you're about as far away from anything as you can get. Now, as the one goat was for Yahweh and the other goat was for Azazel, the conclusion has also been drawn that Azazel must be a person, an evil person because sin is sent there. So a demon, maybe Satan. You'll find it in the footnote of the ESV. It's very hard to say something conclusive. Though, when later we make the connections to the Christ, we will get some more clarity. But whatever or whoever Azazel is, what is clear 
is that the sins of the priesthood, the people, and the sanctuary, all the sin that was, as it were, floating around within God's people, all of that was dumped on that goat. The high priest would put his hand on the goat that symbolized the transfer of sin, and then that goat was brought away into the wilderness to a remote area. And the words remote area in Leviticus 16 verse 22 literally translate as an area that is cut off. It suggests a place from which there is no return. In the later tradition, once the temple existed in Jerusalem, the goat would be brought into the wilderness of Judah and it would be pushed off a very steep cliff, making it impossible for the goat to come back. Usually it broke its neck on the way down. In other words, the sin is to be removed so far that it can never come back, that it can never impact God's people again, so as to never function in the relationship between God and His people. And with the sin removed, God and His people were again at one. Sins had been atoned for. So the Day of Atonement most special day in the religious calendar of the Mosaic law. It was the day on which God dealt with all that stood between himself and his people. By means of rituals involving blood, the mercy seat, the cover was covered. The sins were covered. And by means of the goat that was sent away, the sins were removed. So how does all of that connect to Jesus the Christ? Brings us to our second point. And here we'll draw a little on Romans, but a lot on Hebrews. Hebrews 9 and 10. So now's the time to grab a Bible again and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. The most obvious connection between the Day of Atonement and Jesus Christ is, of course, the fact that Jesus is the perfect high priest. As a high priest, he's gone to the real throne of God, not the symbol of God's throne, the ark, but the true throne. And that took place when he went to heaven. We sang of that with hymn 42. Let's read Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You should note here that when we're reading verse 13 and 14, the word purification... That's the same word for purification that's used in Leviticus 16, verse 30. Again, in the oldest Greek translation of the Old Testament. So there's the link again directly to the Day of Atonement. 
And what this is telling us is that in going to heaven, the Christ of God makes intercession for the people. Here's the connection also between the censer and the incense which the high priest brought into the ark. Now, Christ didn't need intercession for himself because there's no issue with him seeing God or God seeing him. Christ is without sin. But because Christ comes before God as the mediator of God's people, there is the need for the prayer for mercy. For the point of Christ entering into God's presence is so that the people may enter into God's presence. And those people, that's us, we need protection from God's holy wrath. Christ has to cover us. And he does so through intercessory prayer. It's the work of Christ that Paul mentions in Romans 8. And that in particular is the focus of Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 5, which we sang with him 42. So there's a first connect. Christ is the high priest who intercedes. He is our cover. And this is something we deal with each time we hit Lord's Day 12 in the catechism preaching. So there's no need for me to go into further detail on that. Secondly, there's the reality that Christ is the sacrifice. Romans 3 alludes to this briefly when it speaks of Christ's blood. Hebrews 9 mentions this in some depth. We've already noted what Hebrews said of Christ on the score. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the bloods of goats and cows, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Let's now read again a little further on in Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 22, and reading through to chapter 10, verse 4. Indeed, under the law, that's the law of Moses, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer for himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Given 
that the bull was offered for the sin of the priesthood and that Christ being sinless didn't need that sacrifice, the bull's not in the picture. Although one could argue Christ is the fulfillment of the bull in the sense that he is the sacrifice for all those who ever served as priests in the old covenant. But what is very obvious is that Christ is the fulfillment of the goat for the Lord. So Jesus Christ is not only the Passover lamb. He is also the day of atonement's goat for Yahweh. As to when Christ brought his own blood into God's presence, that would have to be with his ascension. For that was a going of his to the Father in his human body. He literally, think about that, he literally took his own blood, he took his wounds into heaven to the throne of God. It is the blood of Christ that stands between us and God's people. That stands between, sorry, that stands between us as God's people and God's real throne. It is the blood of Christ that covers us. That's where that expression in our prayers comes from, right? Cover us with the blood of Christ. And that points us to a central thought in Romans 3 verse 25, that Christ is our mercy seat. Christ is the cover on which the blood is poured out. You've got to think of the ark as consisting of three layers. The box, representing God's provisions, promises, and decrees. That was called the testimony. For Leviticus 16 verse 13 mentions how this mercy seat is over the testimony. And it's a testimony to the testament. It's a testimony to God's covenant. On top of the ark are the cherubim. They're the guardian angels. They are the bodyguards that prevent people from approaching holy God. God himself is said to be enthroned above the cherubim. He's actually not part of the ark picture. But now, in between the throne of God above the cherubim and the testimony below in the ark, in between we have the mercy seats, which one could say protects the people from God's wrath. Just as the cherubim prevented people from approaching holy God, so the mercy seat prevented God in His holiness from approaching His people. The mercy seat, even though it was a physical object, it was actually the mediator between God and man. And thus Christ, as the mediator of a new and better covenant, takes the place of that mercy seat. Another link is the veil, is the curtain that prevented entry to the ark. And for that we turn again to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, reading the verses 19 through 22. Words that are often used when someone makes public profession of faith. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Christ is the curtain. He is the veil that prevented anyone from entering into God's presence at the inappropriate moment. Only a high priest could could enter the most holy place and only on that one day of the year. But now remember, when Christ died on the cross, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And why? Because with Christ's death, there is another way to God's throne. It's the body of Christ. And access to God's throne is now granted freely. For the true sacrifice has been made. We can all go in to the ark. We can all approach the throne of God. And then finally, the intriguing link between Christ and that goat for Azazel. That's the head-scratcher here. And it is that this goat is part of a sacrifice for sin. This goat is said to make atonement for the sins of Israel. And since true atonement for sins is made by Jesus Christ alone, it must mean that the goat for Azazel is also a type of Christ. Christ is the one on whom all sins are loaded. Paul says in one of his letters, Christ was made to be sin who knew no sin. And there's a link here with that well-known prophecy of Isaiah concerning the suffering servant of the Lord. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Leviticus 16 language. And just as the goat for Azazel was sent away to a land cut off, so Isaiah says that the servant of the Lord, I quote, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That's the goat for Azazel. So what is this about? Well, some wonder if there's a connection here with the descent into Sheol, the line he descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed. Could be. Again, Isaiah says right after the bit about him being cut off, and they made his grave, his Sheol, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. The miracle then is that the goat for Azazel was not to come back while the Christ did return from the grave. No longer mortal, no longer subject to death, no longer subject to the consequences of sin. So just as Jesus the Christ is greater than the Aaronic high priest, and his blood is more than the blood of the goat for the Lord, and so Jesus the Christ is greater in carrying away the sins of God people than the goat for Azazel. Others suggest that the goat being sent away is symbolic for the one redemptive act of Christ we still await, the day of judgment, when Christ will remove all sin and evil, including the devil, from heaven and earth, and cast all of evil into hell, into that volcanic lake filled with acid, the second death. And from that lake, there's no return. Now, personally, I'm not sure what all the links exactly are, but there's no disputing that Christ not only pays for the sins with his blood, but that he also ensures the destruction or the removal of sin by his power. Christ not only appeases the wrath of God, 
he also crushes the head of Satan. And so the day of atonement in Jesus the Christ, Christ is the high priest. He makes the intercession. His blood is the blood for the goat of the Lord. He is the mercy seat. He is the cover that shelters from God's wrath. He is the veil. He is the curtain through which we approach God's holy throne. Our sins transfer to him that he might carry them away to a place from which they'll never come back again. Do you see, brothers and sisters, Christ in every way is the fulfillment of the shadows of the Day of Atonement. And what does that tell us? That salvation is only through Jesus the Christ. In the course of time during the Old Covenant era, God gave His people the Day of Atonement. It was to make clear that the holiness of God is not something to be taken lightly. It's to be taken seriously, most seriously. As the Lord God is holy, so the people are to be holy. You can't just go to God's ark and do whatever you want the way the sons of Aaron did. And as the people are sinful, there is no way that they can be holy. And so God provided a means by which the people might be cleansed of their sins, might have their sins covered, might have their sins atoned for, that the people might be holy. However, even Israelites would have known that the, day, the rites of the Day of Atonement could not actually, could not literally take sin away. The author of Hebrews assumes this to be a common knowledge. The law is but a shadow of the good things to come, he says. After all, if the law could deal with sin, would the Day of Atonement not have ceased to happen? Indeed, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The Day of Atonement, like the rest of the law, was a thermometer. It's a favorite image of mine. A thermometer gives you a reading of a temperature, but it can't make something colder or hotter. The law, the Day of Atonement, was a thermometer. It did not give the solution for sin. It just pointed out the reality of sin. But now thanks be to God that He put forward the Christ as the mercy seat by His blood. And it is through faith in the Christ that one is saved. And therefore the call of the gospel is that you believe. That you have faith in the atoning work of Christ. Don't think that your goodness or your faithfulness in maintaining certain traditions or rituals in worship or some other effort of yours will save you from the wrath of God. Your ultimate security, your only comfort, should be that you are Christ's. For only Christ has paid for all our sins with His precious blood as the goat for Yahweh. And has set me free from all the power of the devil as the goat for Azazel. Only with Christ as your cover, with His blood covering your sins, will you be safe in the presence of God. And so seek salvation in no one but Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that in Jesus the Christ you have provided us with a means of atonement. We may rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. Not only is your wrath appeased through the sacrifice of Christ, our sins are removed from us as far as east from west extends, as high as the heavens are above the earth. We thank you for the assurance that in Christ our sins are dealt with and that we may approach your throne of grace with confidence. 
assure us of the forgiveness of sins, cover us with the blood of Christ, wash us with his blood and spirit, have us walk in your ways, and where we fail, have us turn to you, confessing our sins and seeking your grace and mercy. And so have us live our lives in love and loyalty to your honor and glory. Hear us for the sake of him who died that we might live, who lives that we might live forever in your presence. Yes, hear us in Christ's name. Amen.